I know, I read a lot of history, and I know once upon a time, a coin was worth $5 if it had $5 worth of gold with it. And then a piece of paper was worth $5, but only if it was backed by gold in the, in the treasury or silver in the silver certificate. And even then, people were suspicious. Now we have paper that's only backed by fiat. The government says, I think that's what it's worth. Maybe in the new world, something gets backed by consensus. Right. Instead of a government fiat, maybe it's a consensual arrangement by people that agree that it's worth something. That to me is a pretty amazing statement to, to know, to, to be using those two words, fiat and consensus. I always think of those as like very Bitcoin-y vocabulary. Yeah, I mean, he's clearly spending most of his day reading our Bitcoin uh, because <laughs> he knows that it's, it's how he'll learn what is necessary to keep his uh, company alive in the, the coming decades. Yeah, actually, so, you know, we, we've heard Jamie Dimon be skeptical about Bitcoin, and he's the CEO of J.P. Morgan. And I think that we can kind of see the contrast between the leadership of um, CME, right, we just heard today, which is a commodities exchange, and then Goldman Sachs, which is more of an investment bank, and then J.P. Morgan, which is a commercial bank. And a commercial bank like J.P. Morgan has, they've got something like a trillion dollars worth of assets. And all of these assets are denominated in U.S. dollars. So if hyper-Bitcoinization were to happen, J.P. Morgan gets wiped out. Contrast that with Goldman Sachs, where their balance sheet, I'm sure they've got you know dollar-denominated assets. They have all kinds of denominated assets. And on top of that, they actually... You know, their cash flows come from investment banking and from trading. There's a difference between getting your money from investment banking and trading versus getting your money from an interest rate spread between two dollar-denominated loans like J.P. Morgan does. And then go to the total extreme of the CME, they don't give a fuck. They'll trade anything. That's how they make their money is off people trading. They, that can be denominated in any currency. So I think that that affects the, the cognitive bias that the CEO yeah. comes to Bitcoin with. And I'm not surprised to see the contra contrast between these three figureheads. Yeah, the, the great irony will be when Jamie Dimon has to uh, lay off all the people who held dollars. Yeah, that, that'll be a sad day. I mean, it, the other thing, too, though, is that maybe a large hodler will come in and acquire JP Morgan for, you know, pennies on the dollar. Because basically, we're going to need to have infrastructure to lend out all of these Bitcoins to businesses that made the mistake of not owning Bitcoins going into hyper-Bitcoinization. Now they need a way to meet payroll, to you know yeah. continue operating, uh, because obviously their business has economic value to it, You know whether it's a construction business or a hotel or what have you. They, they'll need to borrow Bitcoins. They'll be starved for Bitcoins. And if a hodler can go and buy JP Morgan, they'll have all those relationships already set up, all the infrastructure's there. You just gotta start having Bitcoins go through the uh, stream. And I think this is a, a good point to make generally, uh, especially as we're seeing Wall Street really get interested in, in well, and I guess Chicago, I don't know what Chicago Street is called, but as they, as they get interested in Bitcoin, which is that uh, Bitcoin is sort of notorious for its, for its anti-bank rhetoric. But it is important to make that dichotomy where it's, you know, for instance, at least I'm, and I, and I think you as well, we're, we're anti-bankster, not anti-bank. So we're against people who have been 
making business models that rely on fraudulent monetary practices like fractional reserve banking. Central banking, yeah. getting bailed out, and all of that nonsense. Yeah, but the rest of it is, is very important infrastructure for society. I do hope that they'll be able to adapt to Bitcoin relatively painlessly so that we can continue making use of them. Their trust networks, their lending infrastructure, all of that. Yeah, because it's there's there's kind of a mismatch, first of all, on the consumer side between high time preference and low time preference people. So low time preference people have capital that they want to lend out and high time preference people need to borrow capital, whether it's to buy a car so they can get to work or if it's just to uh, you know renovate their house, that's kind of irrelevant. And then same thing on the business side. You've got high growth businesses that need money to hire more people, hire more salespeople and whatnot. And then you've got slow growth businesses that are just generating free cash flow that they need to put somewhere and they might as well invest it uh, in something that's growing. The banking system provides that financial intermediation, provides those relationships. It would be very hard without that specialization, division of labor, to take care of all of that yourself as an investor. There's a lot of improvements that can be made in banking, whether it's with GPG encryption and signing to make sure that the banking system is has more integrity to it. There's a lot of different avenues to explore in improving the banking system. Yeah, so Jamie, we know you're listening because as much as you want to pretend, you can't get your thoughts away from Bitcoin. We'd love to have you. And we'd also you know, love to help you understand how Bitcoin and crypto can improve your business. We, we are available for consulting. Yeah, he needs, to, he needs to set up his wallet. Next up, we're talking about Bitcoin in the wider context of the global economy and the global financial system. But there is a lot going on inside of Bitcoin itself. The inside baseball politics, of, well, you've got people like Jeff Garzik, you've got people like Barry Silbert or Mike Belshi, who have been around Bitcoin for a while. And obviously, we should respect what they've done to get Bitcoin to where it is today. But now it seems as though their vision has diverged from a good percentage of the community. They are promoting, well, honestly, they're not even really promoting it. Segwit2x. That's why I, I really don't understand what, what they're PR strategy is they they're just putting it out there hoping it works out waiting to see what the market does uh, and that's it yeah well you know let the, let the market decide it's a great meme <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a very very common shitcoin meme yeah every time that we criticize an altcoin we get back to well we'll see you know we'll see what happens you gotta let the market decide and what these people don't understand is uh, we are the market. That's <laughs> kind of why why crypto is appealing is that it's a distributed network of individuals participating in a global marketplace over the internet. And when we're making arguments about the fundamental nature of an altcoin and its economics, we're trying to persuade the market. We're trying to persuade the market to not misallocate resources. Anyway, back to Segwit2x. Uh, Again, we're trying to convince the market not to misallocate resources. We saw, actually, have you been watching the futures trading for Segwit2x? Uh, I haven't seen it recently, but I know it had gone down to, what, 0.16 bitcoins? They've gone on a pump. They're doing the pump part of the pump and dump. They're trying. I think they got it up to 25% of bitcoins value. 
I saw they also, uh, you know, created many, many AWS yeah. nodes, as if we wouldn't notice that there is a, a vertical spike, as if that's, you know, natural organic market growth. And it, it's amusing because they'll they'll say, like, oh, nodes don't matter, right? Like, that's, that's their whole ideology, is that everyone should be running an SPV wallet that points to a miner's node. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's very much a, a Mott and Bailey. Let's promote one idea when we're talking to the, the outside and kind of like change change your tune when it when it doesn't suit you. Well, they, they know that realistically, like you do need to have a good number of nodes to A, be able to relay blocks around transactions and B, have some good public relations, you know, PR. Look at this. We're not just five nodes. Look at these numbers. Yeah. Check out this chart. The the way to untangle this is to get people to put skin in the game. And what better way to do that than to challenge them to trade Bitcoins, their Bitcoins, for Segwit2x coins or S2x coins. Or it, The annoying thing about th their desire to just upgrade Bitcoin is that they haven't put the effort into branding and coming up with a new name for it because they just expect it to be called Bitcoin. So now we just don't have a name for it. S2X coin will have to make do. And S2X coin just is not an exciting name the way Bitcoin is. The hope is that by not giving it a name, I think that they think that it'll default to Bitcoin, which is a crazy assumption. Yeah, especially anyone outside of Bitcoin where they're just learning about this. Adam Beck challenged Jeff Garzik and all of his merry band of forkers to... Put their money where their mouth is. Bet against Bitcoin for S2X coin. Jeff found this to be odd behavior. Hashtag millionaires behaving badly. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jeff is promoting an ICO while he does this. So, An ICO, which is not just any ICO, but an ICO that benefits from forking coins. Because it acts as a sort of uh, hedge where you can jump between these coins or whatever. So he actually has a, a conflict of interest. He manufactured consensus crisis work in his ICO's favor. I think uh, it was, I mean, obviously it was a shrewd move on his part and he could make a lot of money from doing this. Tezos raised 200 million plus just on the meme of governance. Maybe the governance meme is the most profitable exit yeah. scam in the ICO world. But profits and ICOs also mean getting, you know, potentially hit with class action lawsuits. I advise against it. <laughs> you might end up in jail for securities fraud for it, but on its face, it seems to be profitable given how little enforcement there has been of securities laws. Now there's a class action lawsuit in California against Tezos. We'll see how far that goes and how that affects the ICO market. Yeah, but the key thing here is that, that Jeff does not understand the, the skin in the game. No, well, I mean, in a sense, he has skin in the game, right? It's just in all the wrong ways. Uh, maybe <laughs> he understands it even better than we do because he's just taking it to another level. Yeah, he has, he has a much uh, more explosive brain. It's a very sophisticated approach to scamming. And what's crazy to me, though, is how many, quote-unquote, captains of industry are following along with this. So maybe they're getting a cut of Metronome's token you know, in the pre-sale. That would be a good way to bribe CEOs to join your cause.
Speaking of which, we can now go to Shitcoin Scammer of the Week. The honor this week goes to Alex Tapscott. Congratulations, Alex. He set up a website. You know, the first step to doing an ICO scam is to set up a website. That involves a few elements. First of all, you have to have graphics, animations in the background of nodes connecting to each other, points on a, a graph. That's a key part. Always the first thing, yes. You get some good JavaScript people. Yeah, you need to make full full use of HTML5. Uh, the next step, you come up with a list of bullshit features and a roadmap. And the last part of it is you have to bring up your list of advisors. And fun fact, you don't always have to choose people who are actually advisors. No, you you just have to you have to find the big names, the people who have been involved in other shitcoin scams that were successful. That way, if you bring them on your blockchain advisors list, whether they want to be there or not, it provides an endorsement for your venture. And so in this case, Alex wasn't really running an ICO. That would probably require too much effort on his part. Instead, he was creating a publicly traded hedge fund, basically, that would invest in other ICOs. So it's kind of a meta-level type deal. Yeah, he had hired a Canadian investment bank called CIBC to uh, help him market this and uh, release it onto the unsuspecting public. So if we look at his blockchain advisors, he's got Dimitri Buterin, and then you have some random dude, Joseph Weinberg, never heard of him, Dino Angaritis. Catherine Hahn was someone who helped prosecute the FBI, or no, the, the DEA agent who stole Bitcoins as part of the investigation of Silk Road. I believe it was FBI. Carl Mark Forrest. You want to get into the what happened there? Oh, I mean, yeah, we can maybe give the, the brief overview. But yeah, so some FBI agents were, were sent in to go investigate the, the Silk Road and Ross Ulbricht. These people, they got lured into Bitcoin, which, you know, Daniel has written about the, you know, Bitcoin shroud of subtlety and allure, which is just the pull of, of Bitcoin profits can quickly outstrip away the, you know, personal attachment to some, you know, government organization or, or any kind of organization uh, what might be affiliated with that has a conflict with Bitcoin. And this was no, this, this was a great example. So they ended up, they ended up uh, finding their way, I believe, into admin access to the Silk Road. And they also had started their own sort of dark market Bitcoin exchange, stuff like that. They were trying to get their hands on their own Bitcoins. This obviously does not fit in with the, the model for, for proper FBI investigations. So they themselves were prosecuted. And Catherine Hahn, Catherine Hahn, like it, when this first came out that Catherine Hahn was working for Coinbase, people were very upset because they thought, oh, this is the person who is prosecuting Ross Ulbricht, who I do believe is a heroic, if not tragic figure. But no, she was actually the the good prosecutor who was prosecuting a, a rogue FBI agent who needed to be you know, brought, brought under the, the rule of law. So she was listed on this blockchain advisors by Alex Tapscott. If you're going to put someone on your list of advisors it, fraudulently, I would recommend not putting a former prosecutor. It just seems like that person would be more likely to be able to pull the strings to put you in jail. But anyway, he was brave enough to do that. I admire his chutzpah. Of course, you have Vinny Lingham on this list. Vinny Lingham is a notorious shitcoiner. He's created his own shitcoin called Civic. 
a tragic a, tr- a tragic story unto itself since he had also started the the early bitcoin related company gift which was allowing people to use bitcoin hodlers to be able to spend money at at stores using gift cards right so gift had teamed up with bitpay to be able to buy uh, yeah gift cards with bitcoin and then he, he sold it and now is just uh, derping around with his Honda Civic. Anyway, he was he was listed on this list. He was outraged, was emailing Alex Tapscott and then told Alex, please don't lie to me. It reminded me of Jeb Bush going, please clap. And then you've got a couple other people. So basically, this was a, aside from, aside from Catherine Hahn, yeah, they found a good list of shitcoiners uh, to uh, put on their blockchain advisors list. I don't know what percentage of them agreed to be on there. It was, it was probably only his dad, Don Tapscott, who agreed to be on there. Let's be honest. And and my, my favorite part, though, is that the, the heading for it says, some of our blockchain advisors, implying that they have, they have way more that they're not even telling you about. We have an army of blockchain advisors helping us with our hedge fund. Yeah, I mean, if you throw enough blockchain advisors together, uh, you can get into all the pre-sales and make lots of money. Yeah, it's kind of like monkeys monkeys on typewriters. That was explicitly their pitch. In the pitch deck, he has a, a slide that says, Example 1, Access. Civic pre-ICO allocation. It says, as a result of our relationships, we were granted a guaranteed pre-ICO allocation for Civic tokens and so did not even need to participate in the highly competitive ICO. This guy is, A, fraudulently putting, uh, you know, his relationship with Vinny on this pitch deck, and B, highlighting how they basically scammed the civic investors by getting into it before they did, uh, just based on our relationship. Yeah, and this is, of course, this is, of course, a very dangerous part about getting into ICOs in general, because, you know, once you once you accept the idea that it's okay to do effectively a pre-mine of coins, the whole thing becomes extremely corrupt. And we've seen many ICOs, even even notable ones that are supposed to be more reputable, such as the brave, the brave uh, basic attention token. Yeah. Big inv- it's supposed to be this democratizing thing where anyone gets to come by. It's like, no, the, the people on the inside get the most coins ahead of time. But then even after that, they're able to buy up most of it anyway. So even if you had a good idea somehow, you know, even if we could imagine an ICO that was, that was legitimate and good, uh, it'd be very unlikely that you as the honest investor would be able to get, to get your hands on an appreciable amount. Yeah, and to be fair, though, there is kind of an economic reason for doing a pre-allocation like that. If, for example, when you're doing a startup, you can give out a percentage of your equity to an advisor so that essentially they shill for you. That's fine. It's just that when you are selling equity to other people, you should probably disclose things like that. And on top of that, there's no economic substance to Civic. It's fine to do this for a legitimate business that you're trying to get more, you know, big names on there to endorse your product or whatever. But if there's no actual product to endorse and it's just fluff on a marketing website, it doesn't seem very ethical. Yeah, this this makes me think that that ICOs are just the sort of seems like the end game for venture capitalism with technology, where we've just given up on even trying to come up with a a interesting profitable business and just go straight into the larping around investments right yeah it's it's too hard to actually get customers users to go onto your platform and use your network 
um, it's much easier to just have essentially Ponzi schemes uh, within your world. And like we had this in Bitcoin with Pirate at 40 and yeah, people, there people were Bitcoin denominated assets back in the day. And so many people got burnt on them and scammed that now it's frowned upon in Bitcoin to do shit like this. Yeah, people learned and the ecosystem evolved natural defenses and that's to, to you know to the scammers it's seen as toxic because bitcoin is toxic for scammers it will poison them because the community has been inoculated to their bullshit over the years but it's not that's not the case in ethereum where it's a bunch of new javascript kitties who are playing around and have no idea of how much uh, scamming actually goes on until the house of cards falls apart. Yeah, and unfortunately for Ethereum, there's there's very little that it's used for except for these scams. Whereas Bitcoin, while while we had these these things going on since day one, th this vision of this very ideological vision, which which morphed into hodling, sound money, digital gold, and all of that. Yeah, that was baked in, and so it was. It was okay when you got rid of Pirate at Forty. In fact, you know, I, I don't think anyone shed a tear for for a scammer, you know, going away. But with Ethereum, if all of the ICOs went away, where would Ethereum be? Yeah, they don't have other memes going for them. Like their meme is, uh, we ethers are you know fuel for a car. They're not something that you hold as a commodity. The moment that you have everyone in that mindset, I don't see much investment potential for something that, frankly, like they do have on paper the same monetary policy as Bitcoin, right? They have an upper limit of how many ethers are created, but it's not set in stone like Bitcoin's is. There's not the social consensus around it. So my, my prediction is as, as the as ICOs spend their ethers, that they got from selling the ERC-20 tokens. That's what causes capital to flow out of Ethereum and furthers Bitcoin's dominance. Right, that decrease in dominance, which by the way, remember Jimmy Song had written a, a fantastic article uh, mm -hmm. going into the, the pitfalls of, of using that as the metric. You know, we had we had characters, you know, like Roger Ver trying to use graphs of the dominance pointing to you know, problems with transaction fees and Bitcoin and stuff. And really, it, it seems like it was more had to do with the rise of, of various ICO scams leading to misallocation of capital. Right, because as people, to buy these ERC-20 tokens, they have to buy Ethers. So that causes the price of Ethereum to go up, even though the people are trying to just get this uh, scammy ICO. So it, yeah, yeah, it has nothing to do with transactions, but that nuance is lost on someone like Roger Veer, who seems to think only on one track. You know, like he's very, I want to call him narrow-minded. He sounds like robotic when he talks. Anyway, I don't want to insult him too much. I, I, I do appreciate his early activities. Same thing with Eric Voorhees, you know, Eric was, Yes, I, I remember yes. watching a video of Eric Voorhees and uh, Roger Veer talking about Bitcoin, and that you know helped persuade me about Bitcoin. So it's uh, sad to 100%. see them uh, fall from grace like this. Yeah, but uh, once again, you know, congrats, Alex Tapscott, for getting the, you know, our our very first shitcoin scammer of the week. Yeah, uh, and I I hope that he does not get bin talaled by the Canadian government, but it does seem like what he did it was illegal. Was illegal. Uh, I don't think that every 
I don't think that every shitcoin scammer of the week is going to have something as illegal as what Alex did here. Um, but we'll try to find uh, good juicy stories. Obviously, at, at some point, I think in December, when Metronome launches, we'll be featuring Jeff Garzik. Uh, but until then, we're just going to have this ground for leftovers. All right. Thanks for coming on, Michael. Uh, this was fun. Everyone, thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks.